all of us. Everyone at the state's academic medical center. All working together to deliver complete care now and for generations to come. All over the state, including hospital and clinic locations from the Delta to the Gulf Coast. All for one reason, you. The University of Mississippi Medical Center. All for your health. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. Thanks for tuning in. You're listening to Southern Remedy Healthy and Fit on MPB Think Radio. I'm your host, Dr. Josie Bidwell, Associate Professor of Preventive Medicine and Nurse Practitioner at the University of Mississippi Medical Center. Today, we're going to continue answering your questions that you may have related to the novel coronavirus and COVID-19, as well as your general health and wellness questions. You can give us a call at one eight seven seven mpb ring That's one 672 7464 you can always email us at fit at mpbonline.org, or you can interact with me over on my Facebook page, Healthy Habits with Josie. Good morning, Kevin. Good morning, Josie. Hope that you're doing well this morning. I am. My children are back. They were away from me for 31 days uh, while I was working uh, face-to-face with patients and then giving myself the appropriate Um, quarantine time that they are back and uh, that was a blessing for us for Easter so if you hear any um, screaming in the background (laughs) (laughs) they are two boys that tend to fight so they've been they've been talked to about the radio show this morning (laughs) but that that would be what the background noise is if you hear anything and it's it's a a joy to my ears to hear them because it was too quiet around here for too long that's that's great news before we jump into things just this the question popped into my mind Novel coronavirus, do they call it novel because it is something that we've never seen before? Right. So the terminology coronavirus, right, it's just talking kind of about like a family of viruses. And corona actually means crown. And so if you kind of see the graphics of the coronavirus that's out there, you'll see that it kind of has a halo around it, which is where it got the coronavirus name. Now, coronavirus has several different types, and some of them have been around for a while. In particular, the common cold is a type of coronavirus. And so um, the term novel came about because we've never seen this particular type before. All right. And uh, you wanted to start off the show with some important information about uh, underlying causes or underlying uh, uh, health conditions uh, that are uh, important to note about COVID-19. Absolutely. So um, our health department, our Mississippi State Department of Health, releases uh, kind of their update every day about 10 a.m. over on their website. And they've been doing that since this started. And I started really tracking the the information on uh, the 30th of March, really trying to break it down and make it uh, easier to understand for people who may not uh, be real familiar with some principles of epidemiology and how to read bar charts and and that kind of stuff. 
And so I post those daily updates over on, on my Facebook page. And on the 8th of April, we got some new charts starting to appear on there, which, you know, as we get farther along into this, we're going to have more meaningful data. And I say meaningful in the fact that when we first started, there were so few cases, it was hard to run any type of um, significant statistical analysis on stuff because the numbers were so small. But as our numbers have increased, we've been able to now aggregate some of that data and release that to the public. And so on the 8th, one thing that was released was for the people who have died in Mississippi from COVID-19, did they have underlying health conditions or what we call comorbid conditions, meaning you've got it in addition to something else? So in addition to the COVID-19, did they have some other underlying health condition? And so the they also have it broken down by um, race. So we've got the kind of the, the total number so of everyone that has died from COVID-19, and then they have it broken down by African-American and Caucasian, because that's the two groups that we've seen um, death numbers in. And so when we look at that and we look at the total number of um, cases, the total number of, of death cases and their underlying health conditions, there, I pulled out the top three of those. And so this has been consistent since the 8th when these numbers were first released. The, the most prevalent comorbid condition in those that have died has been heart disease. Then next has been diabetes. And then following that has been high blood pressure. Now, the differences between races have kind of flipped and flopped back and forth for the past couple of days. But Pretty consistently, at least for the African-American population, the um, uh, causes have been diabetes and um, heart disease. And then just yesterday, the number three um, cause or comorbid was obesity. Uh, and then for Caucasians, it's been heart disease, high blood pressure, and then lung disease. And so I wanted to point these out because these are our lifestyle-related diseases. So we talk a lot about lifestyle medicine on this show and trying to um, promote heart health and good blood sugar control and cholesterol and control and all those things. And now in light of this information that's coming out, it's, it's just as important to still focus on our overall cardiometabolic health, our blood sugar and our blood pressure and our heart health, um, because it, it matters in terms of our, our just overall ability to, to do well with this virus. And so we want to make sure that we're still investing in uh, our physical and mental health during this time as well. Um, is there any uh, research or thought into why those uh, underlying conditions are adding to the complications with COVID-19? Well, we have to think about what what's going on with COVID-19, right? So we, we think first and foremost of it as a respiratory illness, right? But then when we think about how we treat this respiratory illness, it's going to present with how do we oxygenate someone and how do we ventilate them? And then if the illness progresses and we become septic, which usually means kind of an overwhelming infection that then enters the bloodstream and targets um, the organs, if our organs are already not super healthy, 
then it's going to put a, you know, a bigger toll on them. If we already start with, you know, a sick heart or sick kidneys, then we're going to have problems with that. You know, also with diabetes, we know that that can kind of lower your immune system, right? That's why we tend to not heal as well from cuts and scrapes and surgeries and those kinds of things because our immune system is lowered. And so we want to give ourselves the best chance as, that, as we can. And so we want to, you know, prevent these types of uh, chronic conditions if we can. And if not, if we already have it, then we want to keep it under as good a control as we can. All right. Uh, we are on Southern Remedy Healthy and Fit with Dr. Josie Bidwell. If you have a question this morning, you can give us a call or you could send an email to fit at mpbonline.org or leave a message on Josie's Facebook page, Healthy Habits with Josie. The phone number, if you do want to call in with your question today, is one eight seven seven mpb ring It's one eight seven seven six seven two. 7464. Let's get this one question in before our first break. And it says, I'm trying to grow most of my produce at home. I've been freezing my vegetables for the winter, but need to learn to can. I'm afraid of botulism and home canning. Don't feel comfortable just reading a book and following instructions. Was looking for an online class to learn to can properly. I think it's important, especially these days, to grow our own vegetables and learn to preserve them. Do you know where I could find such a class? Or, Josie, if you had any other sort of canning tips for this person that uh, contacted you on the Facebook page. Absolutely. And it was a, a great question that I saw just this morning. And, you know, I'm thinking back to my childhood and my grandmother canned everything. You know, I mean, she just... And I helped, you know, and that was a hot day in the kitchen when you were doing the canning. But, you know, so first I would say if you have a family member that you know is a canner or you know does a lot of um, home preserving, then tap into them. They're going to be a great resource. Now, that doesn't mean go over to their house and learn how to do it, but you pick up the phone and call them and get some tips from them. And then anytime that I think food safety or agriculture here in Mississippi, my go-to is always going to be the Mississippi State Extension Service, right? So MSU Extension, because they do such a great job of producing public information and public classes about how to grow gardens or cook or be, you know, do food safety and be safe. And so that's the first place I went this morning. And they have a great kind of ebook or downloadable PDF out there on um, home preservation of foods and canning. Now, I know this um, particular question said they kind of wanted more than a book, and I completely understand that, but some folks are better, uh, they better digest information when they read. So I went ahead and posted the link for that uh, PDF over on my Facebook page. And then also I did a quick little um, Google look around for online classes. Now, there were a lot that came up. I didn't share a lot of those resources because I, I never want to share something without uh, knowing the source, right? And knowing if it's, if it's a reliable, trusted source. And so I looked for other extension services across the nation, and there were several um, in some other states that had videos on for canning. And then also there's a National Center for Home Food preservation, which looks like it's coming out of Georgia, maybe. And so I did post the link there as well, because they have visual demonstrations on how to do 
canning. Um, so I hope those are kind of a good jumping off place to start. And if I run across any other courses or re uh, references for anything, I'll post them over on my Facebook page as well. I'm Dr. Josie Bidwell, Associate Professor of Preventive Medicine and Nurse Practitioner at the University of Mississippi Medical Center. Thanks for listening to the Southern Remedy Healthy and Fit Podcast. If you have a question, you can email fit at mpbonline.org or leave a comment on my Facebook page, Healthy Habits with Josie. For ongoing information on staying healthy and fit, subscribe to the podcast using your favorite podcasting app. I'm Allison Walker, the lady auto mechanic, host of AutoCorrect. If you're enjoying this podcast, try my podcast, AutoCorrect. We help steer you in the right direction with your car problems. Find me on any podcast platform or at autocorrect.mpbonline.org. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. Thanks for tuning in. You're listening to Southern Remedy Healthy and Fit on MPB Think Radio. I'm your host, Dr. Josie Bidwell, Associate Professor of Preventive Medicine and Nurse Practitioner at UMMC. We're answering your COVID-19 questions today, as well as your regular questions about how to stay healthy and fit. If you have a question for us, our number is one eight seven seven mpb ring It's one 672 7464 You can email us, fit at mpbonline.org. Or hop on over to my Facebook page, Healthy Habits with Josie, and leave your message there. We do have a caller on the line, so we're going to go straight on over to that and talk with Edward in Jackson this morning. Hello, Edward. Good morning, Dr. Josie. Good morning. Uh, good morning. I'm, 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 yeah, it's it's a good morning to be up here, but uh, I'm, I'll, I'll soon be 75 on uh, my, uh, my 13th year of my uh, kidney transplant and you know i take mm -hmm. immunosuppressant drugs right but otherwise nothing else wrong with me i get out and jack up the cars and wrench the lawnmower around and crawl around and do anything i want to get the ladder and fix everything uh what's my chances of surviving if i get that corona stuff and there's actually, if we look, and I'm pulling the, the picture up from today, because they release that data at 10 every day. So I've looked at it, but I haven't um, been able to analyze it yet. There is a bar graph on the health department website that has immunocompromised as a, um, a marker, as one of the comorbid conditions for underlying deaths. And so it's looking like for the total, it's about 15 folks out of 96 have had that as one of their underlying um, health conditions. Now, what we don't know, or what's which I'm sure someone knows, but is not released to to the public on any of these charts yet, is what if there's more than one illness, right? So there's a, a bracket on here for kidney disease, and there's a bracket on here for immunocompromised. So what? Does it look like if we have someone with, with both of those? And so that information is just not out there and available for us. So we have to just go based off of what we would normally do for someone with your past medical history in terms of infection prevention for, you know, regular influenza, 
stomach virus, you know, bacterial infections, all of those other kinds of things that we don't want you getting exposed to, right? So it's not saying that if you were to get COVID, you would necessarily have a poor outcome. It just might be a little bit, you know, it might be harder for you to fight it off. It might require longer hospitalization, stay, those types of things. So your best course of action is to isolate as much as possible, um, you know, not go out unless it's absolutely essential, wear that face mask and really, really, really good hand washing. Yeah, well, I've, I've got my labs are uh, perfect. You know, otherwise, like I say, yeah. everything, everything is working great in my body. And uh, I've got a uh, an old uh, painter's respirator that I'm taking out. And I'm not going to just take mm-hmm. a chance on one of these masks. I mean, I'm going to seal it all off and wear my goggles. Right. But I'm not going to. My daughter's taking <laughs> care of me, getting what I need. And, and uh me and the old dog, we set up. I got plenty of medicine and everything stocked up. So I'm in good shape. I was just kind of curious because uh, I've had pneumonia before, but, you know, mm. not serious. I was, I was in the hospital a couple of days, but not, not, not yeah. nothing like threatening. But uh, I know I'm not going to have to go out. If I get if I get it, it's going to be tough. But I'm just curious, yeah. and uh, uh, I wish all my fellow Mississippians and Americans, you know, the best of luck and and have sense enough to do the right thing instead of going out and going to places with a bunch of people and bringing it home to your kids and they're going to go to school and give it, you know, some people just don't have any sense. But I appreciate well, you and I appreciate PBS and MPB and you've helped me out a lot and I want to wish you all a good day and a, and a good healthy life. Well, we appreciate you for listening and supporting and we wish you that same long healthy life, okay? All right, Edward, appreciate your call. Let's uh, stay on the phones, Josie. Next, we have okay. uh, Liz, who's called in today. Good morning, Liz. Go ahead. Hey, Josie. This is Liz from MPB Working From Home. I miss seeing you. I know. I miss you, too. What can I do for you today? Well, I have a shoulder injury that in January, when I saw the doctor, he had told me to take some ibuprofen, and mm-hmm. I missed my follow-up because... I was scared to go into a doctor's office without a uh, life-threatening emergency, and I haven't telemedicined him, which I probably should. But anyway, how much ibuprofen can a person take before things start going south, and you shouldn't be taking that much? Right. So for a general person that doesn't have any other medical problems – and it's an adult, we usually recommend somewhere, and it's a musculoskeletal issue, so a shoulder injury, knee injury, something like that, somewhere between 600 to 800 milligrams. 800 milligrams is actually the prescription strength of ibuprofen. So somewhere between six and 800, I usually dose it every eight hours, so three times a day. Um, But I usually only recommend it for about a week or so, because if someone is taking that, you know, as scheduled for a week, and we're not seeing improvement, I want a callback that says I'm not better because I want to maybe change things up a little bit. Now, if someone has kidney issues, then we've got to dose down the ibuprofen for that because it can affect kidney function. If someone has um, a past medical history of maybe um, ulcers in the belly or in the intestine, then I probably don't want to do ibuprofen at all because it can burn the lining of the stomach and increase the risk for those ulcers. Um, if someone has high blood pressure, uh, then 
uh, NSAIDs or the class of medicines that ibuprofen falls into can make blood pressure worse. Now, in the short term, it's probably not that big a deal, but if we were going to put them on more of a prescription anti-inflammatory, that that would kind of make my spidey senses tingle uh, and keep me from from doing that. But um, in your case, you know, if you have been doing ibuprofen pretty regularly since January and we're not better, then it's absolutely time to to do a telemedicine visit uh, with the provider to see what what can be changed up there in terms of your treatment modality. Um, we also want to make sure that anytime we're taking ibuprofen, regardless of what the dose is, we want to be taking it with a full glass of water and with food to keep that um, stomach irritation from happening. That well, help? I will man up and call the doctor and <laughs> <laughs> see see what we how we proceed from now. So thank you so much, yeah. Josie. You're welcome, Liz. Thanks for calling. All right, Liz, we appreciate your call. Next uh, on the line, Josie, we have uh, Asim, who's called in today from Brookhaven. You're on All the air right. with us, so go ahead. Yes, hi. Thanks for taking my call. I have two questions. One is, after making the initial testing at clinics, uh, hospitals, or with grounds, who conducts the analysis, the government or private labs? And my second question is, why is it taking so long to get some of the uh, results? Uh, knowing the seriousness and urgency of this plan of flu. That's all right. I have. Thank you. Okay. Sure. So um, who runs the test is, of course, going to depend on where it was collected. So you mentioned fairgrounds. Um, I know when we started at the fairgrounds, all of those samples were going to the Mississippi State Department of Health to be run. Um, UMC has some in-house capabilities now, so some of those samples from the fairgrounds may be coming into UMC. I'm not certain on that, though, so I'm I'm not going to, you know, plant my flag in that particular hill, so to speak. But um, if we go to the Mississippi State Department of Health website, they do have it broken down on the number of tests that they have run versus the number of tests that are uh, have been conducted by outside laboratory facilities or, or private labs. And it looks like about, let's see if I can pull that up this morning. I had it up. Um, now, the reporting from outside labs has not been updated and since since April the 5th. And I think they only update that particular um, graphic every week, but the health department updates their number every day. So I'm, I'm on the page and scrolling. Here we go. So through April the 12th, um, the tests that have been performed at the Mississippi public health, um, lab is 9,412. And mm -hmm. based on the numbers we have from April the 5th, there've been a little over 20,000 people. Mm -hmm. So it looks mm -hmm. like about half has been mm -hmm. done at the um, public health lab and then half um, have been done from uh, a, another uh, entity. And so in terms of, you know, how long results are taking, that's directly going to depend on where they're being run and what the volume is at that particular location as mm -hmm. to how many tests that they can run. Um, we tend, what I think some people may be confused about is maybe when they go to their doctor's office and we run a flu swab, right? It, we just stick it up your nose and we have a result in 10 to 20 minutes. It's a different kind of a test. That's a rapid test that people, of course, are working on. 
development of, and some places have them. What we've got to be cautious about is how um, sensitive and specific those tests are so that we don't have a lot of false positives and, um, or false negatives. The type of test that's being run most often for COVID is a PCR test, which takes a while to set up. You know, we've got the swab collection, but then now we also have the actual preparation of the specimen and um, setting that test up to run and how many can be run in a, in a batch, so to speak. So it's not quite as rapid of a turnaround for tests, test results, just because of how long it takes to set that up. So that's some of the delay. Um, but that's something that is, is actively being worked on to be able to increase the number of tests that can be run in a batch, um, as well as validating these quicker tests as, as well for that. So that was the first question. What was the second part? Yeah, I, I, you answered both questions. I oh, used to was asking about who does the testing, was it the state or the private labs, and then why it was taking so long. So in other words, the uh, tests that are done outside the state are done by private entities? Well, it may not even be necessarily mm -hmm. outside the state, but outside of the public health laboratory. So yeah, um, I think Quest asking. was yeah. running some, um, LabCorp had some, and so I don't know where if they're running those in lab facilities in the state or if they're being shipped out um, to well, a, you know, a, a larger uh, lab facility there. I'm Dr. Josie Bidwell, Associate Professor of Preventive Medicine and Nurse Practitioner at the University of Mississippi Medical Center. Thanks for listening to the Southern Remedy Healthy and Fit Podcast. If you have a question, you can email fit at mpbonline.org or leave a comment on my Facebook page, Healthy Habits with Josie. For ongoing information on staying healthy and fit, subscribe to the podcast using your favorite podcasting app. Deep South Dining is the show all about the culture of Southern flavor. From fried chicken and collard greens to shrimp and grits and a glass of sweet tea. Subscribe now to the podcast using any podcast app or download our MPB public media app. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. Thanks for tuning in. You're listening to Southern Remedy Healthy and Fit on MPB Think Radio. I'm Dr. Josie Bidwell, and we are taking your questions today about COVID-19 as well as general health and wellness questions. Our number is 1-877-MPB-RING. It's 1-877-672-7464. You can hop onto my Facebook page, Healthy Habits with Josie, and leave a message or a question there. And then lastly, you can always send us an email, fit at mpbonline.org. All right, uh, Josie, as I mentioned, uh, here are some questions uh, from your Facebook page. Uh, this first one says, what medications would one use in order to treat the symptoms of COVID-19 in case of contracting it? I heard that Tylenol should not be used because it may lower immune defenses. Yeah, so um, this question is a great one, um, and it really highlights the fact that we don't have a whole lot of medications, per se, to treat this. It's very similar to how we treat the regular seasonal influenza, except we don't use the, the Tamiflu or the Zofluza, those types of medicines that um, we normally use for seasonal influenza because they don't work. 
for this. And so it really becomes for the majority of cases, right? Because we have to, we're hearing a lot about the hospitalized patients, about the patients that are on ventilators, all of those kinds of things. But it's important to remember that the vast majority of people are going to have a mild to moderate case where they don't feel well, they're sick, but they don't require hospital care. And so for those folks, it's symptomatic care. And so what does symptomatic care mean? It means medications targeting the symptoms, right? So fever is one of the uh, main symptoms of COVID-19. And so a fever reducer. Now, this particular question mentioned Tylenol. I think perhaps um, they meant ibuprofen or Advil because that's the one I've seen the majority of kind of controversy surrounding. Because when we were first uh, starting to really ramp up cases in the U.S., there was some communication that came out of France that was saying um, that ibuprofen or Advil, Motrin, those types of medications were perhaps making the condition worse. Uh, And now, there have not been any really science, firm science to support that. And so um, there's not been any really official uh, mandate for us to avoid that. But it is usually recommended that if we're able to do Tylenol, we start with with Tylenol. Um, you know, as I always say on this show and talking about over-the-counter medications is they're not um, without risks when you use over-the-counter medications. So in folks with liver issues, we want to be cognizant of how much Tylenol we're using with Advil and Motrin. We want, if we've got kidney issues or bleeding issues, we want to be cognizant of how much of that we're using. But those are kind of your two fever-reducing medications. Then hydration is important. So we want to make sure that we're um, continuing to eat and drink as tolerated. Uh, And then some folks have used some of, you know, kind of the -the over-the-counter mucus thinning medications like Amusinex, that kind of stuff, just to thin out the mucus. It's not required, but, you know, if you feel like it helps. And then we talked about last week um, the use of a cool mist humidifier to help kind of keep the nasal passages moist and help thin out some of that snot and some of those secretions. So those are kind of what you would use outside of the hospital-based setting. Treatment is, of course, different once we enter um, hospital care and depending on how much, what the oxygen requirement is, what the fluid status is, um, chance for a secondary bacterial infection, all of those different types of things. Uh, and also, I think jo- last week, Josie recommended the cool versus the warm uh, humidifier. If you could remind us again why that would be the recommendation. Yeah, so I don't like um, warm mist humidifiers for two reasons. One, if you trip over it or a small child pulls it over on themselves, there's the potential for that water to burn. Um, and then second is warm, moist environments are just more likely to grow bacteria and mold and those kinds of things. And so um, if we're not really staying on top of making sure the filter is nice and clean and changing that water out and all of that kind of stuff, it just carries a greater risk for for germies in there. So that's why I prefer the cool mist. Uh, a lot of us uh, have started to wear masks. That's the recommendation when we go out in public. Uh, and if some folks have followed some of the things online about making cloth masks, uh, can you use them more than once? And what would maybe be some tips or things to keep in mind uh, about uh, these masks that we're all wearing? Absolutely. So um, cloth masks are fine for the general public. 
uh, for healthcare providers. Um, I've even seen where we're wearing cloth masks over the top of our surgical or N95 mask just to protect the outside of those manufactured masks so that they last longer. Um, what I want people to realize is you should not microwave your uh, cloth or paper or any kind of mask, really, just don't do that. Um, there, you know, last week we talked about the fact that some of them have a metal metal band um, around the top so that we're able to fit those down to our nose better. And that you surely would not want to put into a microwave. But cloth and paper can catch on fire. And so that is a fire hazard. So the way that they should be cleansed is just regular laundering but laundering at a high temperature as well as drying on the hottest setting that we have. Um, if you can get your hands on laundry sanitizer, it's what I use when I'm washing my scrubs. It's just an additive that you throw in, or you can always throw in um, the appropriate amount of um, bleach for that. That's why I actually like white masks a lot because I can, can add bleach without worrying about them actually bleaching the color out there. Um, the other thing that really we need to work on is not touching the outside of the mask. And so I see it a lot uh, with people out with their mask on and they're constantly kind of adjusting the front of the mask, which I, it's, it's habit or it's weird, especially if you're not used to wearing a mask. Um, you know, I'm so used to wearing a mask from, you know, previous years of being a nurse that I know once that mask is on, like, I don't care if your nose itches, it's just going to have to itch until whatever you're doing is done with. But we've got to be really careful not to touch the outside of that mask. And if we do, then we immediately need to use hand sanitizer or wash our hands. If it is a tie mask, so one of those that has more of the ribbons on it that we're tying, I see a lot of people untie the top um, set of strings first, and then that mask falls on to their shirt, right? Um, and we see that a lot uh, on television shows and people who have taken their surgical masks off and are letting them hang around their neck and whatnot. Um, anything that was on the front of that mask is now on the front of your clothes. And so I usually recommend tie, untying the bottom strings first, and then untying the top strings and just using that string to then remove that mask from your face and place in the appropriate um, receptacle. If it's a disposable mask into the garbage can, if it's one you're going to launder and you're waiting to launder it all at, you know, if you're going to do several days worth at a time, then have a designated uh, laundry basket or um, box or something that you're keeping those in away from your general uh, laundry. The other is if it's an elastic mask, I see a lot of people pulling it down and letting it sit underneath their chin. Well, everything that was on the outside of the mask is now rubbing against the underside of your chin. So if you need to remove the mask, you want to take one finger and slip it behind that ear loop, a clean finger, right? So we've done hand hygiene before we're removing the mask. Slip that off and let it fall off the other side and again, dispose of it or place it in the appropriate receptacle for laundering. Uh, Josie, one uh, hack that I've found that has helped me was when I put the mask on for the first time, you know, I wear glasses. So I, the 
the condensation or whatever was fogging up my glasses. So I found uh, something online that you take a, I took a paper, a big paper clip and unbent it and then wrapped it in like some gorilla tape that I had and tucked it into the sort of the first fold on the inside part of the mask and then secured it with another little piece of tape so that you can somehow mold the top of the mask uh, around your nose. And that seemed to cut down on on the amount of, you know, I'm full of hot air. We all know that. So obviously the <laughs> the amount of hot air that was fogging up my glasses. And then one other tip I heard was that you just, if you if it doesn't bother you, just kind of slide your glasses a little bit further away than you normally would wear them. And so there's a little bit more space there for the for the hot air to get get to get through. Right. Absolutely. And, you know, that's a, a good way we, that we know the mask has a good seal, right? If it's fogging up our glasses, then we know that there's air escaping from around it. Um, so for a healthcare worker or someone who's in, you know, face-to-face close quarter contact with COVID suspected or COVID confirmed patients, the seal is is crucial, right? That we have that done, which is why the the masks that we use for that, the N95s, are especially fit to the individual healthcare provider so that we're wearing the right size so we get that good seal. Um, but you mentioned kind of putting a bent paper clip that I have not heard that one. And that is very smart. You should TikTok that Kevin and put it out there for the world. So you might be famous. That's right. That'll be, I'll be the new virtual <laughs> hero out there. Uh, we do have some calls um, on the line. Yeah. So let's uh, start again uh, in Kemper County. Randy has called in today. Good morning, Randy. Oh, good morning. Uh, glad to get through. Um, I've got a couple questions, uh, fairly simple questions, and I'll, I'll hang up and uh, listen to the radio. But uh, you hear over and over and over again about washing your hands and washing your hands. Well, shouldn't you be washing your face, too, at the same time? And okay. the, uh, another que- the, the second part of that question is uh, how long should you, uh, you know, with or even without the coronavirus, how long should you use the same washcloth and, in, in, uh, you know, hand towel? Perfect. Okay, great. So those are both two really, really good questions. And absolutely, um, washing your face is appropriate. Of course, I'm hoping that the majority of us are not going out um, multiple times a day um, and not touching multiple surfaces. So we don't, we don't touch our, hopefully we're not touching our face as much as we did before. I know that's hard as well. There's been several kind of videos floating around Facebook of people trying to avoid touching their face. Um, but absolutely washing your face is, is appropriate. I make sure, you know, once I come in from somewhere that I've been with my mask that, you know, I'm washing my hands, taking my mask off, um, washing my face as well. We want to make sure that we're, you know, I use a wipe first, not a Clorox wipe. I use one of the makeup removing wipes to kind of wipe my face so that there's not, uh, I'm not getting water in my eyes and those sorts of things. Um, and then in terms of, um, you know, good hand washing, we're going to make sure that we're washing again for 20 seconds um, with warm water, all those kinds of things. I will mention that with all this increased hand washing, we want to um, make sure that we're using some lotion as well to keep our hands from getting too dry and too cracked open um, because that can lead to just, you know, skin infections and that type of stuff. So using some uh lotion there. What was the second half of the question, Kevin? Do you remember? Um, how frequently should you uh, change your, your washcloth or ah, towel out? Yes. So that, again, we always want to make sure that it's one towel per person, right? So we don't want to share the towel among house members. 
Um, also, if someone is sick with any type of illness, we want to make sure that that towel is not being shared as well. Um, and usually if the towel, if you run out of spots on the towel that are dry, it's definitely time to change that, right? Because uh, germs can move through wet material um, better than they can through dry. So I usually, um, you know, we'll use kind of one half of a towel and then the next time I'll use the other end of it and then I launder it. Of course, the absolute best method is to use something that is disposable. Now, in general, I try and cut back on my carbon footprint as much as I can and use, you know, use more reusable things. Um, but in the interest of infection control, as much things as we can use that are one-time use only um, are, are better in terms of infection control. I'm Dr. Josie Bidwell, Associate Professor of Preventive Medicine and Nurse Practitioner at the University of Mississippi Medical Center. Thanks for listening to the Southern Remedy Healthy and Fit Podcast. If you have a question, you can email fit at mpbonline.org or leave a comment on my Facebook page, Healthy Habits with Josie. For ongoing information on staying healthy and fit, subscribe to the podcast using your favorite podcasting app. I'm Professor Richard Gershon from the University of Mississippi School of Law, host of In Legal Terms. If you're enjoying this podcast, I encourage you to listen to In Legal Terms, the show about you and your rights. We find interesting legal topics to bring to you and let you know how the law affects you. Find In Legal Terms on any podcasting platform on your smart device or on our website, inlegalterms.mpbonline.org. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. You're listening to Southern Remedy Healthy and Fit on MPB Think Radio. I'm Dr. Josie Bidwell, and we've been answering your questions today about COVID-19, infection control, and then just general health and wellness. You've got a couple minutes left if you want to give us a call. Our number is one mpb ring And I think we do have a caller on the line. We're going to go down to Biloxi and talk with Craig. Hello, Craig. Hello. Good morning. Uh, about the humidifiers, uh, I, I, uh, I have an ultrasonic humidifier, and it calls for distilled water, and I know mm-hmm. tap water leaves deposits, so they last longer. And I'm not mm-hmm. sure. It's been decades since I've used one. Uh, if, if you can actually see a mist, like if you take one out of your closet and use it, I believe you actually see a mist from them. I'm not sure. Mm-hmm. Yes. And that's, that's all I wanted to say was, uh, was oh. to use distilled water in them because they, they, the machine will stop working if, if you don't use distilled water. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, of course, depending on, you know, the source of your water, you know, your tap water, um, you know, any impurities and things in that. So it's always best to use a distilled water in anything that's going to um, be vaporized or anything that you'd be introducing into your body. Like when we talk about sinus rinses and using neti pots, that should always be distilled water as well. 
Uh, just a quick follow-up on that. If you were going to use a humidifier, do you put it like in the corner of the room and run it all the time? What are some maybe general guidelines if someone uh, does want to use a humidifier? Yeah, so I usually recommend putting it somewhere that you're not going to bump into it, right? So uh, maybe a side table in the corner or really close to the outlet so that you don't have to run cords across the floor. Because if you get up in the middle of the night to go to the bathroom, that kind of stuff, I don't want you tripping over that sort of thing. And, you know, if it's something that you're just using at night, then just, you know, you can just run it at night. Um, if you're ill and you're kind of in the bed or, in, you know, on the couch in the living room all day, you can, of course, run it um, as much as you need to there, making sure that you keep it nice and clean and change out the water frequently. But, yeah, wherever it's safest um, to prevent little hands from tugging on it, um, animals from knocking it over, or you from tripping over it is, is where we want to sit it. All right, let's uh, wrap up the show with a couple of questions from Josie's Facebook page, and that's Healthy Habits with Josie. You can leave her a message at any time with your concerns about the coronavirus and COVID-19, or again, as we've been saying throughout the show, just kind of general questions about your health and wellness. Josie's always able to uh, lend a hand. This one says, I'm a regular blood donor and have gave in early February. I'm scheduled to give again soon, but traveled to Italy in October, and another family member visited from Italy over the Christmas break. Am I eligible to donate? It's a great question, and I'm thankful that we've got regular blood donors and people who are eager to get back out and donate. So I went to Mississippi Blood Services' website because um, I figured they were going to have some things out there. I didn't readily see um, COVID-specific guidelines listed on there, um, but I did some more digging around and looked around and went to the Red Cross website as well. Um, and what the Red Cross was recommending is a 28-day deferment. So if you traveled to um, China or Italy or Iran or any of these other places that were having outbreaks, they recommended a 28-day waiting period from the last travel exposure or exposure to someone who um, tested positive for coronavirus um, or you had... um, or someone who was suspected of having coronavirus that you waited 28 days from your last exposure to that individual um, before donating. All right. Uh, got about a minute and a half left. And this one asks about vinegar being able to kill the virus. And so, you know, vinegar is a great, um, you know, at home cleanser that lots of folks use, especially when we're trying to, you know, stay away from some of the harsher chemicals and that kind of stuff. Um, to date, there has not been anything reliable that I have seen that shows where vinegar, you know, diluted out vinegar or even straight vinegar has been effective at uh, killing the virus. Um, there is, uh, if you just kind of Google um, disinfectants that kill coronavirus, it will link you to the EPA's document on all the approved um, disinfecting solutions that will do that. Also, if you just pick up your regular bottle of whatever it is you normally disinfect with and look at it, it should carry an EPA seal um, and list the uh, pathogens that it is effective against on the back. Um, Clorox or bleach is kind of the go-to right now, um, and there are dilutions for that usually on the back of the bottle. We want to make sure that it's in date on your Clorox, that it's not expired Um, because we just don't know how effective it would be if it's past the expiration date there. Um, But about a third of a cup to a gallon of water is one of the recommended uh, dilutions for that. 
And then we have to remember there's three phases. There's cleaning, there's disinfecting, and there's sanitizing. And they all mean slightly different things. Cleaning is that first step that's just removal of um, visible dirt um, or debris, which you can just do with regular soap and water, those kinds of things. And then there's disinfecting, which is removing a, a, a lot of the germs from it. And then there's sanitizing, which is hopefully removing everything. And usually the difference between disinfecting and sanitizing is going to be the concentration of um, the, the solution, as well as how long you leave it to sit on uh, the surface that you're using there. I'm Dr. Josie Bidwell, Associate Professor of Preventive Medicine and Nurse Practitioner at the University of Mississippi Medical Center. Thanks for listening to the Southern Remedy Healthy and Fit Podcast. If you have a question, you can email fit at mpbonline.org or leave a comment on my Facebook page, Healthy Habits with Josie. For ongoing information on staying healthy and fit, subscribe to the podcast using your favorite podcasting app. If you ever miss one of our locally produced shows or want to simply hear it again, you can find what you need at mpbonline.org or download our podcast app to your smartphone. MPB programming is on your schedule at mpbonline.org.